In the name of the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's be seated. In a little over a month, uh, Ava and I will travel to the Anglican community of St. George's in Jerusalem. We'll be resident for a week, like being college kids again. We'll, we'll take a class that's meant to introduce us through study, of course, but also through pilgrimage to key sites in the Old and New Testaments. So to prepare for this trip, I've been reading a little bit and also looking at one of those uh, city guidebooks that have the clever maps and some history and suggestions for sites to see. And for the record, I've always been intrigued by maps, but I'm not particularly good at reading them. It's hard for me to tell what's water and what's land. So I'm hoping Ava has my back. Our readings this morning had me thinking about this trip because both of them, both Isaiah and Matthew, mention ancient Israelite geography and history. We hear of the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. You remember those, right? Let's do a little unpacking of that. Isaiah's prophecy in the first reading is quoted by Matthew in our gospel. And the reason they're talking about Zebulun and Naphtali is to recall what seemed to be the end of David's kingdom. They're recalling what seemed to be the end of the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel. Remember that God entered into covenant with David. And that covenant was that David and his descendants would be the king over Israel's united kingdom. And that kingdom was to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. God's light and God's love, God's purpose, God's will would shine forth out of Zion. But only a couple of hundred of years after God enters into covenant with David, that part of the kingdom where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali lived that those places were violently attacked by the Assyrians and the tribes were hauled off to captivity. And that's a very big deal, right? If God's entered into covenant that you're gonna have this everlasting kingdom, it seems that this is the beginning of the end when the Assyrians move in and haul off the tribes. And finally, it crumbles in the sixth century BC when Jerusalem itself is seized by Babylon and the remaining tribes are driven into exile. So hope for the kingdom, hope for the kingdom that God has promised to David seems all but lost. And Isaiah prophesies in the midst of that hopelessness that Zebulun and Naphtali, the lands first to be degraded, would be the first to see the light of God's salvation. That's what Isaiah's uh, reading, that's the context. Zebulun and Naphtali, the first to be degraded, would be the first to see the light of God's salvation, a word of hope in the midst of despair. And today, Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. He announces the restoration of David's kingdom. Notice at precisely the spot where the kingdom began to fall. 
That's why Jesus withdraws. When he hears that John's arrested, he goes to the place that Isaiah prophesied and said, now David's kingdom is restored. So David's kingdom is present in Jesus, but he's also proclaiming the advent of a universal kingdom, a kingdom that's to be for all the nations under heaven. It's a big deal. And it's a kingdom, according to Jesus, that requires repentance. And remember, repentance, metanoia, means a change of heart, a change of mind, a turn away from violence, a turn away from entrenched nationalism, a turn away from racial demonization. And this change requires a training. And the training is called discipleship. Calling his first disciples into training, two fishermen by the Sea of Galilee, he says, follow me and be changed. Learn from me, stay with me, become my disciple, and you will be a blessing to people from every corner of the earth as you learn to pursue peace and do justice and love mercy. So these fishermen hear the voice of the Son of God, and they drop their fishing nets, and they follow. And I think we need to be careful not to sentimentalize this. This is intense. Jesus, the personification of God's action, God's will, God's purpose in the world, disrupts their life and their livelihood. To repent and follow him, according to Matthew, is the one thing necessary, the only thing necessary. Repent and follow him. Enter into communion with this king, this king who's going to be lifted up on a cross to draw the whole world to himself. And if we're to follow him, we're to walk in the way of the cross, the way of self-giving and redemptive love, and to be about the work of his kingdom. This work is urgent. It's the one thing necessary for the salvation of our souls, the one thing we need to live a true and abundant life, the one thing. So a few questions for us this morning. How are we, St. James, how are we listening for the voice of the crucified and risen King, calling us to follow him in the midst of so many voices vying for our ultimate allegiance? And we need to be clear that there are so many voices vying for our ultimate allegiance, and we follow them most of the time. So how are we listening for the voice of the one who says, follow me? I'm the one thing necessary. Can we hear him calling us urgently to repent? Change your mind, change your heart, and be about the work of my kingdom. Can we hear him calling us to bear witness to this kingdom, to his redemptive love in those places that lay in devastation because of our collective sin. I'll end with a provocative and challenging story, provocative and challenging for me just as much as for us all. But I think this story might help us see 
a little bit more clearly what it means to be the church, to be the people who listen to Jesus' call and drop whatever we need to drop and follow him and seek his kingdom. It's a story that James McClendon tells about Clarence Jordan, who was the founder of the Koinonia community, which was an interracial farm founded in the 50s in Georgia. It's the place that gave birth to Habitat for Humanity. Have you ever heard of that organization? This is where it started from. And Koinonia community still exists as a farm in Georgia. So it's the early 1950s, and it's said that Clarence asked his brother, Robert Jordan, who would later be a state senator and a justice on the Georgia Supreme Court, he asked his brother to represent Koinonia Farm legally. And his brother replied, Clarence, I can't do that. You know my political aspirations. Why, if I represented you, I might lose my job, my house, everything I've got. We might lose everything too, Bob. It's different for you. Why is it different? I remember it seems to me that you and I joined the church the same Sunday as boys. I expect when we came forward, the pastor asked me about the same question he did you. Do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes. What did you say? I follow Jesus, Clarence, up to a point. Well, could that point by any chance be the cross? That's right, I follow him to the cross, but not on the cross. I'm not getting myself crucified. Well, then I don't believe you're a disciple. You're an admirer of Jesus, but not a disciple of his. I think you ought to go back to the church you belong to and tell them you're an admirer, not a disciple. Well, now, if everyone who felt like I do did that, we wouldn't have a church, would we? The question, Clarence said, is, do you have a church? Friends, let us continually take the risk to listen to the voice of the crucified and risen King, change our hearts, change our minds, and walk in his way so that we might be his church, a light for all the nations and for all kingdoms, because his voice is urgent and it's clear. Follow me. And if you do, you'll discover the kingdom of heaven breaking into the kingdoms of this world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.